Inner chaos is part of so many lives. When we go through it, we often try to hide it on the outside. Now I'm okay. I'm all good. But inside, there's a struggle. Why do I feel this way? Am I broken? Am I the only one feeling like this? When people connected with Jesus, they would grow to trust Him, pull down the mask they wore. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, as we begin today, why don't we begin with prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing here in our church. Uh, for what Michaela shared, we thank you that you're leading us into the season where you're pushing our boundaries. God, thank you for, for Alpha and for the hundreds of people that are coming in here every week to learn more about who you are and to understand you more deeply. Lord, thank you for those people who are walking into our church week in and week out and wanting to know more about who you are. Thank you for all the ministries that we are involved in. God, you are stretching us as a church and for that we are thankful. So Lord, as we look at your word today, we pray that you would continue to stretch us, stretch us internally, stretch us so that we become more like you and we hear your voice this morning. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, as you know, we're doing it's our, it's our okay not to be okay series. And today, this morning, I want to begin by uh, chatting with you guys about pet peeves. Anyone have pet peeves? Nope. Just me. Sweet. Uh, you guys are real holy. Um, no, pet peeves, it's something that we all have, and it's something that we all have to work through. And I was thinking this morning, maybe I should share a few of my own pet peeves, but then I thought against that because I'd like to have my job tomorrow, and um, I don't want you guys to all know how much I secretly don't like people. So um, I, what, I went on, what I did is I went online, and I looked at kind of some of the most common pet peeves that people have, and there's this list, this like definitive list of like the top 10 pet peeves that people go through. And I wonder if some of these might resonate with a few of you guys. Uh, number one, very clear, was uh, loud chewers. Yeah, yeah. You know those people at the library or the quiet space who open up the box of crisps, you know, or they decide to just chew on the celery and you can hear every movement of mouth or food in their mouth. Uh, another common one are uh, people who never use their turn signals. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, you're driving, everything's fine. And they just mosey on into your lane with no indication whatsoever. Like they own the place. Mm, gets you angry, doesn't it? Or uh, for those of you who are in class or in studying, another really common one was uh, students who ask their most ridiculous questions every class. You know that person too, eh? It's when they, you know, the lecturer just starts in and they put up their hands and you're like, oh no. We just lost 20 minutes to this guy. Yep, that's another common one. Uh, here, another one, this might uh, apply to those of you in families that was there, was uh, people who leave empty bottles or empty containers in the fridge. Yeah, that one is poured out all the milk and then closes the top, puts it right back into the fridge and closes it like it's magically going to refill itself later. Anyone guilty of that one? No, don't put up your hand. We, uh, we still need to be friends later on. Uh, another one that, was, that popped up that I was quite surprised by was uh, celebrities who lecture us about environmentalism, which at first I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But the more I thought about it, I was like, hey, yeah, they've got like six houses that they're heating all the time and private jetting all around the world. And I get told off for using a plastic bag at Countdown. <laughs> Seems a bit rich, eh? Or... Um, 
Now, this is quite true. After I shared this story this morning in the first service, I had one person who was so excited he had to come tell me his number one. And I thought it was so good. I think it's one that we can all relate to. It's when you're on the highway and you're driving and you're stuck behind somebody who's going 80 in a 100K road and you're stuck behind them for ages and then you see there's a passing lane coming and you're, you're waiting for your moment. And as soon as you hit the passing lane, what does the person do? They accelerate to 110 and you can't, get around them. And so to get around them, you have to push it to 120 and your poor car is shaking. And they're over there like nothing's happening. And you can't get around them. It goes back to one lane, right back down to 80. Mm. When you see these people, these pet peeves, they, they raise these emotions within us. And you're like, what is wrong with you? Like to those, you know, if you do that and you're driving 80 and then you go up to 110 and then you go back to 80, when we we're in that space, all we want to say is there is something not okay with you. There's something not okay about a person who pours out the milk and puts it back in the fridge like nothing's going to happen. There's something not okay, which puts us in a bit of a difficult position with this series. Because a lot of the things that we've looked at so far, the people that Jesus has encountered are things that we can often really resonate with. You know, he goes to the woman at the well who's lonely, who's, you know, cast out by the people around her, and we can resonate with that. And he goes to the lepers who no one wanted to touch. And there's that sense of loneliness and not having a home or a community. And we can resonate that with that. And that's all great. But what happens when Jesus starts to go across those boundaries to those people who aren't okay, that we're not comfortable with, or those people who make us angry or frustrated or nervous or scared. And it becomes a complex thing within us as we suddenly realize that Jesus is no respecter of those boundaries. And he reaches out to everybody, regardless of whether we think they are worthy of it or not. And so today we're going to look at one of those very stories and one of those Christians who had to rush, wrestle through this very issue. This guy's name was Ananias. And now Ananias was a, uh, so he was a Jew, but he was a new Christian, a new convert to Christianity. And he was living in this town called Damascus, which is a, a city just on the outside of the borders of Israel. And uh, so in the, uh, at this time point, uh, time frame, Jesus had already died on the cross, uh, resurrected and had returned to heaven. And so this new movement of Christianity was just beginning. And these new Jews who heard about Jesus are just starting. It's starting to gain some traction and it's starting to gain some movement. And so Ananias is one of those new converts and he was well-respected within Damascus. He was respected in the synagogues. He knew what was happening. And he was a really good member of the community, a stalwart Christian who was one we could all look up to. But then Ananias has this encounter where God suddenly pushes him into this scenario where he has to meet with someone who wasn't okay, but who he wasn't necessarily comfortable with. The scriptures in Acts 9 tells it like this. In Damascus, there was a disciple called, named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles 
and their kings and to the people of Israel. And in this one moment, in this one vision, in this one prayer time, suddenly Ananias' world is thrown upside down. See, because Ananias knew about what was happening. See, just recently, uh, because the Christian community was growing so rapidly, there began some pushback from the Jewish authorities. And it had gotten so heightened and the conflict had gotten so strong that just recently, the very first martyr of the Christian faith had come. Stephen, who was pulled up in front of the Jewish authorities and asked to renounce his faith. And Stephen said, no, I cannot. And so he was publicly brought forward and killed, stoned. And who was the person chairing the stoning? Who was the person there holding the coats of the people who were throwing the stones? Saul from Tarsus. See, Saul was a very well-respected Jewish leader. He had grown up within the, within the realms of Jewish power. He'd been trained by one of the top rabbis and he knew the scriptures inside and out. And he was very zealous for his religion. He saw Christianity as this weird cult that was taking the core essences of the Jewish faith and twisting it into something sick and morphed. And so Saul was filled with this zeal to restore strength to the Jewish community. And so Saul had begun this onslaught of persecution. And so after Stephen was stoned, Saul went to the uh, chief priests and the rulers and asked them for permission saying, look, persecutions spread out here in Jerusalem. And now all the Christians are fleeing to the surrounding cities. Let me go to Damascus where I know many of them are. Give me permission to go grab them, round them up and bring them back here so we can publicly try them and publicly shame them and put an end to this Christian plague once and for all. And this was the person that Ananias was called to go pray for. How uncomfortable would you feel if you were Ananias? How willing would you be to go and pray for him? This is the guy who's literally just been known for killing Christians and wanting to come here to find Christians, to take them back, to possibly get killed. And God says, Hey, yeah, you know, that guy that was coming to find Christians, kill him. I want you to go find him. And I want you to go pray for him. And even beyond that, Ananias doesn't, Ananias knows that Saul's had some sort of encounter with Jesus. But really this encounter with Jesus, it was a bright light. It shone, it hit him. He fell down and then God blinded him, which I don't know about you, but if I were Ananias, I wouldn't think, look, God, if you're going to win some around to our side, maybe not blind him. Like maybe be really nice to him. Let's like sweeten up the deal a little bit. No, you're going to blind them. And I have to go pray for them. Thanks for that. And there's this call where Ananias has to decide, is he going to go? Is he going to go pray? Will he respond to a Jesus who goes to those who are not okay, even if we are uncomfortable to go to them ourselves? And so it raises this big, deep question for us as Christians, which is who can God use? Who does God reach out to? And who does Jesus appear to? Uh, I remember I had to face this question really uh, profoundly a few years ago in my life. Uh, so this was just when I had just begun working with Youth with a Mission, and I had completed their discipleship training school. So I went back on another school called the School of Evangelism to get trained on how to share my faith with people. And like a good school of evangelism, one of our things that we did is we went out to the surrounding cities and we took the opportunity to try and share our faith with the people we met in those cities. And so there was this one time we went to this city called Bern. And we wanted to go chat to the people in this city and talk to them about Jesus. And so we went out during the day 
and uh, tried to have conversations with people. And it didn't quite go as stellarly as we'd hoped. You know, we had all these great like tools that we were meant to use and none of them worked probably because we were a bunch of Americans and other people trying to talk to you about Jesus, but none of us knew Swiss German. So that made it kind of awkward. Um, so we spent this whole afternoon trying to talk to people and it, it didn't really go anywhere. And so we ended up going home and thinking, well, what are we going to do? And we thought, well, in the daytime, people are really busy. Like they're going from place to place. They've got things to go to and they don't really have the time to talk. So why don't we, let's try going back tonight when it's calmer and people are just hanging out and just spending time in the city and maybe people will be more willing to talk. And we thought that was a good idea. So we put together the tea and the coffee and we got them in some of these thermoses and we thought, oh, we'd take tea and coffee to them and have chat with people over hot drinks. And so we thought it was a good idea. And so we went into the city and we did just that. And I remember when we pulled into the city we, where we parked, it was near a train station and it was right underneath the a bridge where all the trains went over. And as we got out of our cars, I remember thinking, oh, cool, this is going to be awesome. And then I, I looked over to the side and off to the side underneath the bridge was, there was this quite this dark area. Like there was one street light, but it was in the middle. And then all around the edges of like the edges of the light and the darkness, I could just see a whole bunch of people like huddled together and like, couldn't see what they were doing, but they all had their hoods up and they're all crouching over. And it just looked sketch as like, if you wanted to get shanked, that's the place you went to go do it. So well, I remember when I got out of the car, I looked over and I thought, all right, let's go chat to people about Jesus to the city then. And uh, we made our way and I thought, let's go to the well lit places of the city. And so we walked through the city and we tried to talk to people and uh, try to start some conversations. And we talked to a few people, but we didn't talk to heaps of people, probably because we were a bunch of weirdos offering them drinks from the canisters we brought ourselves. And if it were me, I wouldn't want to drink some strange job like that someone offered me. So in hindsight, I can understand why we seemed a little bit weird. Uh, but so we went through the night, had a few conversations, but nothing really major happened. It was just a night where we mostly just walked around and were cold. And so we were making our way back and we get back towards the car and we'd been going in a group. And so I was holding the thermoses and one of the girls, one of the people in my group was a small little French girl named Fleur, just not, not tall like this. She's tiny. Right. And as we're there, we're all getting ready to go home. And she looks over and she's like, Hey, look, there's some people. And before anyone can say anything, she's like, let's go. And she just charges over. And uh, I'm sitting there holding the tea and coffee, like holding the mechanism by which we start conversations. And I'm caught like no part of me wants to go over there. But pride is really compelling when I'm like the tall guy. And I feel like she's going to die if I don't go with her. And so I'm sitting there like, <sighs> so I kind of follow along murmuring under my breath about how much frustrated I am with this little French girl who seemingly has no fear. And so we make our way in and just to give you a picture scenario, we're heading towards like the center of this light and we're, we're beginning to walk by some people. And this is what, this is what we're walking through. As I'm walking through, uh, I look over to my left and there's someone who's injecting heroin into their arm. And as we keep, we look over in another direction and there's all these people smoking. And then I look off to my right and I see someone in a wheelchair. And because of my own prejudice and weird thinking, I think, Ooh, wheelchair person, they'll be nice. I don't know why I thought that. I just assumed disabled people are nicer. It's probably, I just thought that. So I look around the corner. I think, oh, I'm going to go talk to the person in the wheelchair. And as I kind of look around, I look down. Nope. Person on the wheelchair has got a platter of cocaine that they're just doing lines on. And I was like, okay, I won't bother you. You seem busy. And uh, so we keep, we keep walking through. And so it's so sketch and I'm so nervous. And so we're walking through and this French girl, she's charging in and my hands are shaking. And so as we get to this edge, there's this group of guys over here and there's a group over here. And we're kind of standing there like these weird nincompoops, right? And Fleur looks over at me now that we've made it this far. And she looks and she says, 
weren't you going to offer them tea and coffee? I'm like, you do it. I didn't say that in my head. I thought you do it. You're the one who wanted to be out here. I don't even want to see these people. I feel really uncomfortable being this close to them. And so, but again, pride is a very compelling motivator for me. And so I don't want to be shamed as the wimpy guy. So I have to show myself as a macho man. And I go, um, <clears throat> um, um, would you like some tea coffee? <clears throat> they kind of look up and say, so, would you like some tea, tea, tea or coffee? And I kid you, so this guy, he's hunched over like this, right? And so he hears me talking, he goes up and he goes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. So I get down and I start making tea and coffee. I feel like I've done my job, right? I've done what I need to do. So I start making them coffee and I'm like, how do you like it? They're like sugar, lots of sugar. So I say, okay, okay, lots of sugar. And as I'm making them the coffee, I'm terrified out of my mind. I feel so uncomfortable and I'm a good Christian missionary kid. I was told to never go to spaces like this, right? And uh, literally uh, two meters down, two meters down, a fight breaks out where people start throwing bottles and syringes at each other. And I'm hanging there like, I'm going to die. <laughs> and so they're going, and as I'm making this tea and coffee, and out of the corner of my eye from across the area, I see this guy look at us, and he sees what we're doing, and he goes like this. And he sees us, and he goes. And I was like, well, Lord, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. Take me now, Jesus. And he comes over, and he looks at us, and he's like, is that tea and coffee? <laughs> you can't really say no when you're holding the flask, can you? There's no, no, it's not. I'm thirsty. I'm dehydrated. So, uh, yep, yep. Yeah, it is. Do you want some? Yeah. Okay. So I go ahead and I make him some coffee. And as I go through, I get it ready. And I reach out to hand it to him. And as he puts his hand out, he looks at me and he says, in Jesus' name, oh, I thought it's martyrdom time. Like this is, I'm going to end up on like some sort of YWAM news site as like the poster boy for martyrs and YWAM, like giving his life for the Lord. And again, I didn't really, I didn't know what to say. So I just mustered up enough courage to be like, yes. He goes, cool. <clears throat> and just starts drinking. And I'm freaking out. I have no idea what's going on. Fleur's just standing there like a statue, like all brave now and saying nothing. And now I'm the one who's got to do everything. And uh, as this guy's drinking his coffee, I look at him and I muster up just enough courage to be like, hey, you asked us in Jesus' name, like, do you know anything about Jesus? Do you know anything about faith? I didn't know what else to say. I just felt like I should ask some sort of question. And as he's standing there with his coffee, he goes, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I know that, you know, in the beginning, I know that God made, God made everything. God made all of creation. He made man and woman. He made Adam and Eve and uh, he made creation really good. But then Adam and Eve through their own selfishness and sin uh, decided to sin. They ate of the fruit of good and evil. They disobeyed God because they wanted to be like God. And from that point, sin began to work through them. And it became this cascading line where from ever on that point, humans were trapped in the scale of sin. And then human and all of humanity was broken in this decrepit place. And so that's when God decided to send Jesus. So Jesus is God's only son, fully God, fully man. And uh, Jesus came and he lived amongst us and he lived a perfect life, but we still rejected him. And uh, we actually ended up crucifying him. And what we thought was a loss is actually a victory because through his death, he, he bought redemption and freedom for all of humanity. And so if we just believe in him, we might be saved. <laughs> but 
You thought I was shocked. I then look around and in this group of druggies who are all doing their stuff, they're sitting there like, huh, that's really good. I've not heard anyone talk about God like that. And there was this amazing moment where there's these Christian missionaries and we'd been trained in how to share our faith. And we've been trained in all these good things that we should do. And so we were going out there to share our faith with people. But in that scenario, who was the one that God used to share the gospel that night? It wasn't us. It was the one I was incredibly scared of. The one I was uncomfortable around. The person who I thought was probably too different or too far away from God to be able to be used in that way. He was the one that God used to share the gospel on that night with those people. And I'm so struck by that. And by this story that we find with Ananias and Saul, what I love about it is that you find in this story, Jesus is destabilizing all of these norms. Nothing about this story makes sense. Nothing about this story makes sense. Saul, who's a persecutor of the church, who is actively trying to destroy it. Who's in the center of Jewish political power. Once he encounters Jesus, everything is flipped upside down. He falls on the ground. He's too weak to stand. He needs to be carried by the rest of his mates into the city. He's blinded. He cannot see. He does not eat. He does not drink. He moves from this place of power and strength to this place of humility and is at the complete in the hands of someone like Ananias now. And someone like Ananias who compared to Saul would have been on the outside. He was a part of this small, struggling, growing movement that had already been oppressed and a few of its members had already been killed. And so they were hiding out many of them in Damascus to try and seek refuge from the onslaught that was coming. And so Ananias, who would normally be in the outside, suddenly finds himself in the position of power, being in the position of an insider who's being called to step outside of his comfort zone to go to Saul. Nothing about this story makes sense, but that's what's so wonderful about what Jesus does. When he goes to those who are not okay, he flips everything. He destabilizes all of those norms and all of those things that we would normally use to separate us from them. Those categories of here's the good Christians. Here's the bad Christians. Here's the conservative. Here's the liberals. Here's the young ones. Here's the old ones. Here's the ones God likes. Here's the one God doesn't like. As soon as we encounter Jesus, all of those barriers just begin to get muddied and flipped and swept around because Jesus is no respecter of our own systems of categorization. When we say these words that it's okay not to be okay, what we're saying is that Jesus meets you and everyone right where they are at. And that includes those for whom we would put beyond the category of God's grace or those to whom we would not necessarily think as being worthy of God's love. Those for whom we feel scared to go to. Those for whom we feel awkward connecting to. Those for whom we feel really frustrated whenever we have to relate with them. Jesus is drawing them unto himself. And so what does Ananias do? He's got this choice, really. He can choose to not go. He can just leave it there and leave Saul in this weird haze of blindness and awkward in between. 
He can say, no, we need to protect the Christian sect. And I know I might've had a vision from God, but it probably wasn't him. So I'm just going to stay here and keep things safe. Keep things normal. I'll stay in my house and I know that I won't be killed or humiliated later on. He could have, but he got up from his house and he went down to straight street and he found the house of Judas and he entered it. And what I love are the very first words that he says to Saul. Placing his hands upon him, he says, brother, brother. This person whom all of the Christian community would have seen as the greatest enemy of the Christian followers. If you could have put a picture on someone who represents the anti-God or the anti-Christian movement, it would have been Saul. But when called to go to him, Ananias opens up his arms, lays his hands upon him, puts his hands on his shoulders and says, brother, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Jesus destabilizes those norms and someone who was seen as a terrorist now became one of the greatest leaders of the Christian faith. In fact, the passage goes on to say that as soon as he had recovered his strength, he goes down to the synagogue like he always intended to. But rather this time, instead of finding the Christians and dragging them back to Jerusalem, instead he spends his days talking with anyone whom he can find, convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul becomes the greatest hero because he takes this wonderful knowledge and this great upbringing in the scriptures that he gained in Jerusalem. And he now uses that very understanding of the scriptures to prove that it must be Jesus who had to come and die and be risen again in order to inaugurate the kingdom of God, a vision for Israel and the world that was so much bigger than any Jew could have ever imagined. Who can God use? Anyone. When we go through the series and we say, it's okay not to be okay. We have to be, we have to recognize that Jesus is no respecter of our own pet peeves of our own boundaries with which we like to set up between us and them. Because as much as we don't like to, we live that way. It's not hard. You go through Christian media and you can easily see as we begin to set up walls, you know, we have this sense of Christians that are fighting against the onslaught of progressivism that is eroding away our Christian heritage and filling it with the secular society. So we have to push back against that. We have to push back against that. Or at the very least, we can look at the systems and the movements of the Middle East and we see the great problems that come through, through terrorism and we can fear and say, no, we don't want that. But the difficulty is, is all those boundaries have said, those are the bad guys and we are the good guys. All those things fall apart in light of who Jesus is. Because if we are to say that a terrorist is too far from the grace of God, then we need to rip out half of our new Testament because it was written by a person that most of the Christians would have considered some sort of terrorist. Who can God use anyone? And so today, if you've come in here and perhaps you feel angry or resentful of who God is, 
You don't, you don't identify as a Christian. You don't identify that you fit with the Christian faith. And in fact, you may be really upset with what the church has done to you in the past. You may be really upset with how the church portrays itself and frustrated on what that means for what you believe in and what you see in the society. If you feel yourself antagonistic towards God or the Christian community, when we look at this story and we look at the words of Jesus, there is only one word we can say to you here today, which is welcome, brother or sister. Because we believe that God is working in you and is calling you. And so we open up our arms and say, if God loves you, then we love you. You are welcome here in this place as you are. Or perhaps today you're someone like Ananias and you've been in Bethlehem or you've been in the church for a while and you feel pretty happy and you're comfortable with what the church is doing. For all of us who are in that scenario, we need to be careful because God is no respecter of our boundaries. And often when he goes out and reaches those people who are not okay, reaches those people on the fringes, reaches those people who are difficult to reach, He'll call us to go and do the same. God's call to Ananias to go and lay his hands and pray is a, is a call that echoes through to you and me today. To go and lay our hands and pray for those around us. For our enemies, for those whom we are frustrated with, for those who we don't understand, for those who we don't get along with. Christ's love calls us to go open up our arms, place our hands on them and call them brother or sister and pray for them because that is who Jesus is. And that is who he calls us to be. So let us be a church that answers that call that is able to be brave like Ananias and that is able to step out of our doors and go and be present with those whom God is calling. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you reach out to the people that we are uncomfortable with. Jesus, I thank you that you don't see the world like we do. You don't see it in categories. You don't see it in terms of us and them. You see people who you love. And so God, I thank you that even 2000 years ago, you went to a man named Saul, who was an enemy of the Christian community, who was seeking to push back and pull you down. And you said, I'm going to choose him. I'm going to call him to join with me. And Lord, I thank you that you do the same thing today. All of us are here. All of us only are standing before you in this community today because you have gone and done that for us. You have called us and said, come, be in my family. Lord, would you give us as a church the courage to follow you where you lead, to go with you as you go to reach out to the people who are not okay, even if we feel uncomfortable being around them because of our own issues. Help us to see them as you see them with love with hope and let us be ready to give that call of freedom that you are speaking over each and every person. Use us, guide us, and lead us. In your name we pray. Amen.